Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Most editions of Cover Stories with Chess Life follow the same pattern. Each month, we talk to the author of our cover story. This month, however, is a little different. Dan Lucas, former editor of Chess Life and now our senior director of strategic communications, got back in the saddle for his December 2020 cover story on John D. Rockefeller V and his $3 million gift to U.S. Chess. Now, Dan's employment with U.S. Chess wouldn't prevent him from appearing on this podcast, which, in fact, he used to host. But Dan now hosts another podcast, One Move at a Time, where this month's guest will be none other than John Rockefeller. So this left me in a bit of a quandary. Obviously, I didn't want to drag Dan onto my show, where, of course, he'd use his best material and leave nothing for his own. So who could I ask to pinch hit? Who could possibly be interesting enough to fill such big shoes? Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson is a national master a chess teacher, and in a former life, he was a poker player of some repute. Now he's known to chess fans all around the world as the host of the Perpetual Chess Podcast, a weekly show where Ben interviews chess players and personalities both famous and, well, those of the likes of me. It's a must-listen, and it's one of the first things I check each Tuesday when I sit down at my desk to work. Ben and his guests cover a lot of ground in their talks, ranging from improvement to books, to chess culture, and in what follows, I'll try to drag out the very best of what Ben has learned in his over 200 episodes of Perpetual Chess. I'll also try to get a deeper sense of what Ben's like when he's not in his basement, stuck behind his recording equipment. With that, let's welcome to the show. Ben, thanks for taking the time to talk to U.S. Chess. How are you doing? I'm well, John. Thank you for that nice introduction, but does this mean I'm not actually on the cover of Chess Life? Not, uh, yeah, we had to promise you things, and um, unfortunately, it just didn't work. So, uh, someday, uh, it's like Lucy and the football. You you just keep running, and uh, you'll get there. You'll get there, Charlie Brown. We have to start with Perpetual Chess, because this, I mean, for the past, you know, almost four years, almost, well, three and a half years now, four years almost, it feels like, um, this has been such a big thing in the chess world, And, and you've had, I mean... Everybody, all, well, almost everybody uh, on, on the podcast. So how did you decide to start this podcast? What was the inspiration? First, I do have to give the requisite congratulations to U.S. Chess for this $3 million donation. It's amazing. I'm so happy for everyone in the organization. As you guys know, I'm big fans of, of what you guys all are doing, and it's great to see. Uh, shout out, obviously, to uh, John Rockefeller V for doing that. That's just just incredible. So I'm really happy happy to see that, especially in a year when there's so few tournaments. Um, now, as for the podcast, um, so I started it in late 2016, and I had been brainstorming it for you know probably at least a year. Um, I had gotten back into teaching chess, which I'm sure we can kind of piece that together how that happened at some point. Um, and I was doing. I lived in Pittsburgh with my wife and kids at the time. And I was doing a lot of after-school chess programs and driving all over the place. And I love podcasts and of course I love chess and there just wasn't much out there. And I didn't feel like I was the most qualified person to start a chess podcast, but I did have a few good connections in the chess world. Um, I went to the Masterman School with uh, Greg and Jennifer Shahadi among others. And I've been friends with uh, Grandmaster Jan Gustafsson of Chess 24 fame for a long time. So I knew I had some connections in the world and I was interested in the medium. And of course, I love chess. So after about a year of procrastination, I finally started doing the podcast. And, and so who were some of the first guests? Was it, I mean, if I remember, it was, it was Greg and, and Jan and, and, and who else? 
So Greg was the first guest and Jan was the second guest. No surprises from my perspective there. And then the third guest, I believe, was uh, uh, Nazi Pakitsi. Okay. And she was the first person I didn't know. So once she agreed to do it and she agreed to do it, um, I have a producer who helps me with the podcast. Shout out to Matthew Passy, with, without whom the podcast would not exist. And and who, by the way, has been a big help to U.S. Chess behind the scenes. So definite double shout out. The the fame double shout out. Yeah, he's a he's a good guy, and having some much rewarded success with some podcasts much bigger than mine as well. Um, so he suggested that I release the first three episodes at once to kind of like generate buzz. Apparently, is what is done in the podcast industry. So I was tr- looking to line up a third guest, and I felt like it should be someone I didn't know. Um, so Greg put me in touch with Nazi and she was willing to do it. And that was when I felt like, okay, you know, I can release these three episodes. And I talked to my wife who thankfully gave me the blessing because this was going to cost money. I mean, I'm paying the producer out of pocket. I'm paying for some equipment. Um, plus there's obviously the, the time investment. Um, but luckily she gave me the blessing to give it a six month trial. And, you know, it was received reasonably well from the beginning. So um, from then on, it's been I guess, dare I say, smooth sailing. Famous last words, if ever there were any. Right. Um, so, I mean, you've had just, I mean, everybody. Like, I mean, you know, Jan Timon recently. Um, I mean, that was mine, fun, yeah. Oh, my God. Boris Gelfand for, for number 200. Um, and, you know, John Hartman three times. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Pinch myself. <laughs> so who, who have been some of, the, some of your favorite guests that, you, that you've been able to, to drag onto the show? Well, of course, there's this sort of shocking things you, you mentioned, like these just absolute legends of the game, like Vichy Anand and Judith Polgar. Um, those, I think, were the two that, that made me the most nervous. I usually don't get nervous for these interviews, but those, it's just like you're, you're in the presence of royalty. So I get nervous for those, and those, of course, are good interviews. Um, far be it from me to, um, to uh, criticize these legends, and they're very, couldn't have been kinder. Um, you know, tell some great stories, but people of that stature are interviewed all the time. So I try my best, but it can be hard to get them to just sort of spill their souls, um, which is really what you're looking for. So to me, it's, um, it's often the sort of more journeyman type um, that I feel like has uh, some of the best stories, like someone like Mikhail Krasenko, um, you know, who made his way from Russia to Poland. Um, and has been, you know, low key a top ten player many times, but and and turns out his games are amazing. Which he's just one of those names I knew, but I reviewed his book because I was interviewing him, and they just just blew me away. Um, you know, people like that. Um, people like the I love the his, the people who touch deeply in the history of chess. You know, like a John Watson or a John Donaldson or a Jenna Sasanko. Um, so for me. I, I love hearing the stories. I love hearing about people, you know, switching countries in order to pursue their dream and stuff like that. And that part of the vision behind the podcast was definitely like to sort of connect the moves to sort of the broader story of what, what drives uh, these elite players and these authors and these teachers and so on. That's been one of the most interesting things, I think, in, in all the guests that you get, yeah, because you do get a very wide variety. I mean, you get, you know, uh, class players who who are looking to improve, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, you get chess authors, you get some of the world's elite, um, and and you, you do a very good job of sort of drawing them out um, and giving them space to talk. I know, um, you know, when John Watson uh, did his interview with you and he listened to it again, he, he commented on that. He said that you, um, he, he thought that you had done a very good job in giving him room to speak and sort of letting him, letting him lead the conversation and take it where, where, wherever it was going to go. Um, and, you know, uh, from someone who did a lot of interviews for, for ICC, I thought that was a pretty big compliment. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, it's nice to hear. Who are the people that you want to get that you haven't been able to get yet? Um, well, for a long time, first of all, one of my answers for a long time was Jan Timmon, because, I mean, he writes like a poet, and he's he's met, you know, I mean, not just met, played and had drinks and misadventures and intense battles with every legend under the sun. But I somehow managed to check that one off. Um, and of course, Boris Spassky is another common answer for me, but he's, you know, he's, he's not young. I don't know if it's going to happen. He seems to keep a pretty low profile these days. Um, so beyond that, of course, uh, I would like to interview Yasser Sarawan and Maurice Ashley, U.S. chess legends in their own right. You know, I've, uh, 
I've made some inquiries, but you know, they're busy people, but sooner or later, I'd love to see that happen. Um, and you know, obviously everyone, of course, the person I get asked about the most is Magnus Carlson. And similar to what I was saying about Judith and, uh, uh, Vishiana, and obviously that would be amazing. And I do love the way that Carlson like shoots from the hip and has like a dry sense of humor. Um, and you know, I'm friends with Jan Gustafsson who's been on his team. So I've not really made any inquiries, but to me, it's not like outlandish that I would get to interview him someday, but that he's one of these guys who gets interviewed all the time. So it would be a nice feather in my cap. It would be kind of like a lifetime achievement award, but I don't think, um, I don't envision that leading to, um, him like bearing his soul in a way that he never had before. Yeah, that's um he he is kind of a hard get although we just had him on um Chess Life online. We had a an interview with uh, John Tisdall. That was amazing, yeah. And and I mean talk about shooting from the hip. Um I I can only imagine what he would be like uh you know live and in person. I think that would be a very very interesting get. So uh hopefully uh you can pull the pull the strings and and make it happen. One of the things that I really like about the podcast is I said, you have all sorts of people and the improvers episodes are incredibly, at least from my perspective, they seem to be incredibly popular. So what are they and, and where, where'd you get the idea for them? Yeah. So the adult improver episodes started about a year into the podcast and basically mostly as we've discussed, I interview um, top, top authors, top players, even some sort of chess business people like, like Danny Wrench of chess.com. And uh, Thibaut Duplessis, the founder of uh, Lee Chess. Now, of course, Danny Wrench is a strong player in his own right. Um, but I started to get some feedback from listeners that they didn't find these top players relatable. So it's not like no one was listening to the podcast. But a lot of these, these uh, people who make it to Grandmaster, they don't know the struggle. You know, I mean, they know that chess is hard and everyone has plateaus and everyone has slumps. But their, their ascent from, say you know, 800 to 2300 tends to be at minimum, tends to be fairly smooth sailing. They'll be like, oh, you know, I, I had a slump where for eight months, my rating didn't go up. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of adults who like, it's year after year, and they're working hard, and they're struggling. Um, so I started to get that feedback, and I was trying to kicking around what to do with it. And then uh, this gentleman by the name of Andres Christois um, made a post on Chess Reddit, which I try to keep an eye on. Um, detailing how he'd been like basically a lifetime 2100 and he got tired of not improving and he altered his uh, study routine and then he went to a tournament and had like a 2550 performance and made an IM norm and on top of that he had some other great results so like out of the clear blue sky as like a almost 40 year old dad he raised his FIDE rating from like 2100 to 2250 um, so I was just like I need to talk to this guy and I felt like I needed to couch it differently. And to be honest, at the time, I was still sort of seeking what the audience wanted. So I wasn't sure that that's how it would be received. But despite having gotten a few emails along those lines, you never know if they're representative of the, uh, the sort of larger will of the listeners, which is, you know, of course, what I try to cater to. But that was just uh, like um, very well received right from the beginning. People were blown away by his story. And to this day, as you say, the adult improver episodes, as they're called, I try to do one every six weeks or something like that, um, are amongst the most popular episodes. You know, you'll have like an 1800 player who's gained 200 points getting more downloads than like, you know, Paco, Va Paco Vallejo or like, you know, um, uh, Pantala Hare Krishna, these just mind boggling elite players um, because people just find their stories relatable. So that, that's how that came into being. It's it's funny when you when you say the names of some of the people you've had on the podcast. Um, almost in, immediately, my mind flashed to where I was driving when I listened to them. I mean, I, I you know we we listened to the Hare Krishna one uh, last summer as we were uh, driving around um, near the Arbor Day Farm in, in Nebraska. Oh man, you don't subject your family to these, do you, John? <laughs> I do, I do, and uh, I have a very patient family. Wow. They're, they're lovely people, and uh, they put up with an awful lot. Um, but you know, even the same, the, the Paco Vallejo one, I was going to a tournament down in Lincoln and I remember, I remember driving in the car and listening to it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild how we have these associations. I, I wanted to ask you, I was going to save this for later, but I should ask it now. How has talking to these people and, 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 you know, talking to chess coaches and, uh, and, and improvers, what has that taught you about improvement 
And have you had a chance to try to apply it to your own game? You know, I really, I, I feel like if there's a prevailing theme that's been established about uh, how adult improvement works, um, you know, obviously data and science would be better than the, the, you know, 200 anecdotes that I've accumulated. But nonetheless, it's that no one knows anything, you know, <laughs> as to paraphrase William Goldman speaking about the Hollywood industry, um, but that you, you kind of need to torture yourself. Um, there's just there's just no getting around it. If you want to get better at chess and you've hit some sort of plateau as an adult, um, you know, uh, doing what you've been doing probably isn't going to cut it. And I'm unfortunately basically in that boat. I mean, I, you know, my rating peaked when I was 18, about uh, 2270. And then as we might talk about at some point. Um, I, you know, I worked outside of chess, but would still, especially when I lived in New York, I would show up, uh, at the, at the Marshall and, uh, donk off some rating points as we would say in, uh, in poker parlance. So, um, I just lost those rating points and, you know, it, it, at the time it didn't, I, you know, being only, only having sort of my toe in the chess world at the time, it didn't occur to me that like, yeah, if you just show up and play and don't do anything else or, uh, you know, very minimally do anything else you're not you know you're not going to maintain your level let alone get better so now you know these days i feel like it's part of my job to make an attempt because you know the community on chess twitter and the listeners to the podcast shout out to people like neil bruce and vishnu and john you know you've got a family and i know you're grinding on 365 chess academy puzzles like oh. somehow finding the time um you guys amaze me and I try to do it too, but I'm putting in like, you know, maybe five to seven hours a week and it, it doesn't feel like enough. No, um, I, have, I have to admit, but the alternatives are more, which just I've, I've mentioned before, I'm not like a wake up early and study chess guy. That's never going to be me um, or do nothing, which I'm also not willing to do. So that's what I've settled on. And for me, since I've, lost a bunch of rating points i can at least take solace in the fact that right now it's not so much like i'm trying to like achieve new heights i'm just trying to like regain some lost glory um so we'll see what happens once the pandemic's over yeah i, I feel like that part is also very important that we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves in 2020 it's uh yeah we, we, we can cut ourselves a little slack at least in, until the vaccines kick in thank goodness um so yeah so improvers but also there's also this new feature you're doing uh chess books recaptured so so what's this what what how do chess books work on a podcast <laughs> well they just come up every week on the show and it's funny because some guests will come on and be like and they'll like caveat it like i recently interviewed from peter giannatos of the charlotte chess club he was saying i know chess books are dying but i love chess books you know try and explain it away and gm jesse cry said a similar thing um but over in my little corner of the universe the chess books are thriving. So, um, and I know that, that the listeners are interested. They are always eager to hear new uh, chess book recommendations. And of course, there's many people like us, John, who have the affliction of buying more chess books uh, than they can possibly read, as my, as my wife would attest. Um, and I'm sure yours, yours would as well. Um, so I just wanted to sort of serve that audience. And also, I just wanted to sort of try a different format because I do enjoy interviewing people and, you know, getting back to what you said about John Watson, um, I try not, you know, I try not to be the story as, as the uh, received wisdom in, uh, in journalism goes. But I did want a chance to sort of, um, you know, speak a little more freely and, and not feel totally self-conscious that people aren't tuning in to listen to me. Um, so it gives me a chance to um, brush up on some great chess books, share what I've learned. And also it's another way to sort of bring in the community because I have a different guest co-host every month. So all these people that I've been exchanging emails or tweets with for years, you know, it's great that people step up to volunteer and treat it like a serious endeavor to prepare their notes and, you know, reread or read this book and then just come on and sort of share their passion for, for that book and, and chess. So that was the vision behind it. And it's a lot of fun. The workload is tough, I have to say. Um, because they're popular, the people who love those, those particular podcasts, which I kind of call a bonus podcast because they generally come out once a month on top of a weekly interview. Um, but they are a lot of work on top of all the other work and not quite as many people tend to listen to those 
as the general podcast, but again, they really resonate with some people. So I'm going to try to keep it going. Um, like, I mean, I will keep it going. I may need to adjust the, the monthly schedule. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to pick some of this back up later when we talk about chess books, because, um, you know, you, you are a bibliophile as I am. And so I, I want to hear what you've been looking at. And I, I want to talk about this question of the death of chess books, but, but let, let's save that, um, for, for a little bit later on. Um, I did want to talk about sponsorship because your podcast, it's not free to make. Right. Uh, there's equipment and time. Um, and so one of the things you did early on was go to the Patreon model. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how that worked out and what that's done uh, for you in the podcast. Yeah, so that's been huge. So when I started the podcast, of course, monetization for any sort of content endeavor is the million dollar question. And, you know, having a wife and kids devoting the kind of time I do to the podcast, I really, you know, I decided to do it for six months out of the kindness of my heart. But long term, I needed to be compensated, um, even though, again, I love doing it, but it just wasn't going to be feasible um, to do without finding a way to make money. Um, and of course, the cliche in the sort of content industry is like, if you, if you find an audience that'll take care of yourself, of itself. And that was sort of my vision going in is... Um, Possibly, um, you know, I felt like it was a glaring void in the chess media landscape that there wasn't really a chess um, interview podcast at the time that I launched it. So I was hopeful that some, <clears throat> excuse me, that some chess site or multiple chess sites, um, or maybe I would hustle and get some outside of chess, uh, you know, sponsor like Squarespace or whoever, the mattresses that are on every podcast under the sun. Um, I thought maybe that would be the route to some sort of monetization, but people just started to offer to donate money. Um, so at some point, probably about six months in, um, I decided, well, I still, I didn't have any sponsors and you know, I'm, it's like a ball. You're just trying to keep up in the air. So I wasn't even spending a lot of time trying to chase down sponsors, but I could spend two hours setting up a Patreon page. And if people want to support this endeavor, then they can. And right away, you know, I don't remember how many, but a lot of people, um, um, sub, like, uh, started to support it for free just because they enjoyed the podcast and wanted it to continue. And I'm forever grateful to everyone who supports it and has ever supported it. And now we're up to over 300 people supporting it. Now we also have uh, Chessable uh, runs regular ads on the show, which you know. I, I was I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love what they do, of course. So it's great. Um, as I said to Gear, when I uh, Gear, who's one of the uh, chief content people at Chessable, it's it's nice that I don't have to like shill alcohol and firearms on the podcast. I can support this product <laughs> that I like. You know, so it, w it would definitely give it a very different feel if you were doing that. <laughs> yes, yes, it would. This next, let's take a break and hear from Smith and Wesson. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> At least Alakine's gun would be uh, more to the oh, point. Oh, you've been saving that joke, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was going to ask you about Chessable. How did that come? How did that come into into existence? How did that relationship happen? Well, you know, I mean, I got to be increasingly friendly with the guys. I mean, I I managed to. Uh, I knew I'd met John Bartholomew once. Um, you know, in New York when he was actually he lived there for a little bit. So, you know, probably about 2012, I met him through some mutual friends. I am Dimitri Schneider. Um, shout out to Andre Zaremba, Ben Katz, all those guys were pretty tight and I, I lived kind of far away, but one night they came to, to Brooklyn and we met at a bar. So I knew him a little bit and saw him, you know, kind of blowing up in the, um, you know, chess media world. And obviously I'm a huge fan of his, his videos and uh, his presentations. I mean, they're, they're incredible. So I interviewed John right when he had sort of signed on as the co-head of Chessable. And then in due time, I interviewed their uh, founder. David Cramley, who's actually like the programming guy, although a like legit chess enthusiast as well. And at some point, David just uh, offered to sort of kick in some money and eventually it became more formal. Um, and, you know, now they're, as of this year, they're running ads every week. And, you know, they're, they're pretty awesome. I mean, I asked them about stuff like, you know, tracking codes so that they can see if it's like remunerative to their bottom line to run these ads every week. And they say that that's not really what it's about. They just like, you know, they see, you know, they see content that they like and they're, they're able to support it and they want to support it. So that that's awesome. I, I do have to say when, when, when that relationship started, it felt incredibly natural to me that your audience and, and what I take to be their user base seems to have a very big overlap 
Um, so I, I was very glad to see it, and uh, you know, it's it's always nice to hear uh, quality work being supported. So I, I did want to ask you: um, Do we know what happened to Moonmaster? <laughs> so Moonmaster nine thousand. There was a so. One of the perks, you know, when you set up something like a Patreon page, it's nice that people support the show out of the kindness of their hearts, but you also want to try to give them something for, uh, for their kindness, something in return. So uh, content creators are constantly trying to brainstorm. You know, people offer various merch. You know, people, are, people will, like, let people appear on their podcast for outlandish sums. You know, <laughs> pe- people have dreamed up all kinds of things. I, of course, do, like, a closing credits thing where I, I, I list everyone who donates more than $5 a month. And I'm, you know, so gratified and uh, um, grateful, so happy that um, it, the list just keeps getting longer. So Moonmaster9000, uh, there's a few people who are like, I want to support the show, but I don't really need to hear my name at the end of the podcast, or in some cases, I'd rather not. So Moonmaster9000 was like a comet that just flew in the air and then disappeared. He uh, supported the podcast for a while and submitted a lot of questions, and his name cracked me up. I definitely remember when I interviewed GM Gatakamsky, who that was a, a really good interview, um, if I do say so myself. I was just really impressed by his honesty. And he was someone I was a little intimidated by. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> he has a he has a very uh, strong persona when you see him on stream. Yeah. So when I when I busted out the question from Moonmaster Nine Thousand, Kamsky <laughs> just started laughing. So I think from there, for like people who listen every week, the the legend of Moonmaster Nine Thousand grew. But as of now, he's in hiding. So shout out to Moonmaster. Please come back. Definitely. Yeah, you don't have to support the podcast, but just drop us a line. Let us know you're okay. Send up a flare. Please, seriously, I'm, I'm, I am concerned for you, Moonmaster. So just let us know you're okay because uh, it's, it's, it's important to us. Um, so let's, let's move a little bit. Let's, let's talk about your chess career because, you know, I mean, as you say, you, you, you got to almost 2300. But your, your, your early playing days were on the mean streets of Philadelphia. Yes, indeed. At the Masterman School. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell us about that. And then you met some pretty famous friends there. So how, how'd that all start? Yeah, shout out to Philly. I mean, that's how I got into chess is uh, I, I was, you know, I will say as a podcast host, um, one thing I've noticed is I've gotten a little bit tired of the chess origin stories. I have to admit, John, um, you know, I, I, hope, I hope no one's offended to hear that. So I'll keep mine short. <laughs> But basically, I was introduced, I learned to play chess when I was six, and I was captivated, but I didn't know there was a chess world until I was 12, when some kids were playing in the cafeteria at lunch, and then it turned out they were playing as part of a uh, a, uh, newly established chess club. So, um, you know, I started showing up along with a friend of mine at the time. Of course, I thought I was like, um, hot, uh, you know what, and um, (laughs) and I was terrible, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) and but i just loved it so i started going right away and uh you know some kid named greg shahadi eventually was recruited he actually i believe he came to masterman in seventh grade and i was in eighth grade i could be off by one year but believe it or not i was better than him when he came despite the stature of his dad mike shahadi shout out to mr shahadi as i call him who's a senior master um but and a, a fide master too correct yeah but uh, Greg is just, you know, I mean, he's, he's just um, a natural genius. Um, he just assimilates chess patterns so quickly and remembers everything that you see him. So I didn't stay better than him for too long, but we became really good friends. I mean, I spent countless hours at his family's house. And of course, Jen is a couple years younger. So as she came to Masterman and got into chess and as we, you know, grew up together, you know, obviously we're good friends now too. And, you know, there were some other master, some other chess masters that came through Masterman and, you know, it's a public magnet school, um, very diverse, um, you know, school base. So it was a, a really great experience to see people, um, you know, from all walks of life with this uh, shared passion from for chess, which of course is sort of foreshadowing what I do now. So how do you think scholastic chess has changed since you were a scholastic player. I mean, you know, what's your sense of how, how it's, how it's different today? Yeah. Well, I heard your cover stories with chess life interview with, uh, Maurice Ashley. I mean, of course he wrote an amazing article about, uh, of course I'm going to butcher his name, but Abu, uh, the kid from New Jersey. Abimanyu Rishra. Uh, yeah. Mishra. 
Yeah. Um, and you guys were talking, you know, sort of alluding to like, has it gone too far? <laughs> How good these kids are getting? And that's to me what has changed. I mean, it, it used to be that like I was, I'm the same age as Josh Waitskin, um, who was just like, you know, God's gift to the chess world, even before the movie came out. I mean, he was just sort of, um, you know, uh, a singular talent in terms of his rating compared to his peers. But he, and I didn't know him personally, but he, by all indications, was like a well-rounded kid, you know? Um, and we have kids who are socially well-adjusted, but the amount of time they're putting into chess, um, and of course the resources available in the digital age, are just like from another planet. So, of course, there's more opportunity professionally as well, which is the good side. But, but hearing you, you and Maurice wonder, as a dad especially, um, uh, your conversation resonated with me about like, you know, um, you know, to me, it's not automatically an unmitigated good to have every brilliant kid spend, you know, 35 hours a week on chess. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult question. And, you know, my daughter is taking her very first steps in chess right now. I mean, we just started doing, you know, the very first elements of step one of the of the steps books which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute and and you know she loves it i mean you know she loves sitting on my lap and uh so to, to break it up sometimes we do the uh, the chess tutor program yeah you know the and you know and, and in, in my heart i have these dreams of you know her playing in the u.s women's championship um and then i think about what it would take to get there and i think do i really want to do that to my kid i mean it's it's a lot yeah it's a lot it's, it's a lot. But on the other hand, someone like Christopher Yu seems so happy, you know, and he's so brilliant. Like, it doesn't seem like, I mean, would he, you know, would he really rather be like uh, reading Beverly Cleary or something? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, You're showing your age with that reference there, my friend. <laughs> That's all but I got. Sorry. <laughs> your, your point is well taken. I mean, yeah, they, by all accounts, and, and you know, I've, I've met Christopher. I've gotten to talk to him. I know, I know he and his dad a little bit. They love what they do. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's not, it's not fake. It's genuine. I mean, he loves chess. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work for a kid. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's definitely strikes true with me that there is a difference there. And I just, it's hard to say whether or not it's, it's good or bad. It's just, it's different. Um, now you've done a lot of chess coaching. You started off in New York, uh, with chess in the schools, um, which is a pretty famous, uh, setup. In New York. So, so tell us a little bit about that and, and how you got your feet wet. Yeah, those were fun days. So I graduated college in 1999 and I spent two years working at a law firm. I was considering going to law school um, and I decided I'd had enough of working at the law firm and I mostly encountered uh, miserable lawyers. Um, but nonetheless, I was determined to apply to law school, but I decided I knew some of the people at Chess in the Schools, uh, Elizabeth um, Vickery, now Spiegel, was already there. Um, and, um, I knew some people just through her and through the chess community. So I was, you know, pretty sure I could get a job there and I decided I would try teaching chess. And this is, you know, back in those days, it was like, um, it was a lot, uh, it was, it was, um, not, not as uh, common as it is now. And it was, um, you know, pretty, um, I'm struggling to find the right word, but, um, it was unusual and didn't really seem like a career. I remember very early on hanging out with Elizabeth and her, her telling the story of, um, she said, people will always ask me, like, you know, she would, she would tell them that she would say, I tell people that I teach chess. And then they say, well, what are you going to do after that? And she'd say, no, no, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> like, and from a very early age, I mean, she was in her, probably her mid twenties at that point, she was adamant that like, this is a legitimate profession. Um, and, and this is how I want to spend my life. And lo and behold, she's become more, you know, probably the, 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 most prominent and best scholastic teacher in the country. So um, anyway, when I got to chess in the schools, it was fun times. I mean, uh, Mike Klein, who I knew a little bit from scholastic tournaments, was in the same quote-unquote recruiting class. Um, Jonathan Korbla of uh, Jeopardy and being hilarious fame um, was, uh, was also in the same recruiting class. And uh, Sean O'Hanlon, who's had a successful career as sort of a chess coach and now sort of facilitator, I think he's at Spire in New York now, was one of our supervisors. And David McAnulty, um, from, uh, who, of course, uh, made his bones in the Bronx and then 
came to Chess in the Schools and then wound up at Dalton and now has retired. He was our other supervisor. So it was all these people who, ended, and Steve Herks, rest in peace, uh, kind of headed the organization. Um, so it was all these like really sort of kind-hearted people who were, you know, they were training us to be better teachers at a time when no one really did that. Like to the extent there were chess uh, programs, basically you just kind of sent the, closed your eyes and sent the teachers there and hope like no one gets hurt, you know? <laughs> and then they, they were sending evaluations and, uh, you know, teaching pedagogy. Um, and uh, so I learned a lot there and I loved it. So pretty soon I decided um, that I wasn't going to apply to law school after all. And uh, yeah, so you, 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 you taught in New York, uh, then you later you taught in Pittsburgh, uh, and now you're teaching in central New Jersey. That is correct. And on my computer. <laughs> yes, as, as everyone is these days. Yeah. Um, and, and as part of this, you've, you've started the Perpetual Chess Academy. That's the website. Um, so talk about your teaching now. And in particular, um, I know you are one of the first people who was uh, Stappen Method or Chess Steps certified in the United States. So, so what does that mean? And, and what are the Chess Steps? Okay. So, yeah, I run a few after-school programs in central New Jersey. Um, I, of course, have interviewed some people who have these huge thriving programs, like uh, Adam Weisbarth, who runs Silver Knights in uh, Northern Virginia, and the aforementioned Peter Giannatos and Coach Jay out in L.A., um, killing it, great teacher. Um, but I, what I do is kind of more small scale just because the podcast is my baby. That's my number one priority. It's been that way for a, a while. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of through connections um, from the podcast, um, I was given an invite by uh, Paul Sweeney, another great chess teacher in um, the Nova area, um, to train, uh, to learn the chess steps teaching method with uh, I am Yap Delamar. Um, from the Netherlands, who was in turn, in addition to being a very strong player, um, was trained by the founders of this uh, teaching method, which basically was invented in the Netherlands a few decades ago, um, and tries to be sort of a um, uh, whole cloth curriculum um, about uh, how to play chess. And they, you know, it's by, I mean, I'm sure you can help me here, but, uh, you know, an I am and an educator, right? What's um Corvan Widgeren? Yeah, I know I their names. That I'm trying to remember their academic backgrounds. Uh, Cors and I am Rob Brunia was an educator. Ed, yeah, um, but I, I don't remember. Um, I don't think he had an international title. Yeah, I was just trying to remember his exact angle as an educator. Like, was he like a psychologist who just studied pedagogy? But in any event, um, yeah. So it's a fantastic program, and it definitely helped me a lot as a teacher. Um, for my school programs in particular, I teach a lot of beginner level players, so it's um, immensely helpful. And John, I know you've had your own experience with it as well. Yeah, no, I I, um, I was actually in the second class um, with Yop. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I think this is well known to anybody who has read any of my work or, or has heard me on these podcasts. I love the steps. I think they're the the single best teaching method out there. Um, but I, I wonder, because you know, I was, I was thinking about this today, um, I, I was putting together a list of chess resources because, of all things, my my ill-fated dissertation advisor uh, reached out to me. And we actually, for, for those who saw this on Twitter, we had a very nice conversation today. It was all love. Uh, the, the guilt left. because I was feeling very guilty because I didn't finish my dissertation. Um, uh, and it was my fault, not his. I, I should say that. But, um, you know, I was, I was putting this list together and... Um, you know, I was thinking about how one could use the steps in an American context because um, my experience is that most American parents want things to move a little faster than the steps would recommend. The you know the steps are a very uh, slow teaching process, and the idea is that you're going to get the basics down and you're going to get them down really, really well. Um, and so the idea is that when you learn more complicated things, like you don't hang pieces mm -hmm. um, or you don't you know overlook checks or things like that. Have you found resistance from parents if you try to move that slowly or, or are you able to sort of talk your way out of it? I personally actually haven't. I don't know why that is. I think the, the few private students that I teach, they tend this, the parents tend to either be hands off or I pick up the students a little farther down the line. Um, but going in the course of the courses, as you with uh, Yap Delamar, as you know, John, it's kind of like a discu discussion with a group. And Metan Prilatinsky, another um, 
national master and, um, you know, hugely um, respected and great teacher um, was saying that he encounters that a lot. Um, and he's just, he was just like, you just have to tell the parents how it is. You know, you just have to tell them this is your profession. <laughs> you know what you're doing. Um, and I, you know, I definitely agree with the pedagogy. I mean, you see kids, um, you know, you'll, you'll see online curriculums where they're just like, they teach checkmate and then the next week they're teaching forks and pins and x-rays and all that stuff. X-rays mean skewers for those of you who are grownups. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, that's great. And the kids love that stuff. You know, they love to learn the language. They love to feel like they're being, uh, getting a peek behind the curtain. But I definitely agree with uh, with Maitan and the Chess Steps folks that if you actually want them to become better players, you just need to drill, 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 and kind of learn every skill to mastery rather than um, rather than just uh, fly through everything. Which, and as a teacher, you have that inclination because it's kind of boring just repeating the same thing over and over again. But that that's how it should be done. You have now also merged your podcast and your teaching with the perpetual chess happy hour. So, so what is this? John, you are a master plugger. I appreciate it as always. I yeah, do so, my best. <laughs> yeah. So like a lot of scholastic teachers, uh, some of my programs, um, didn't make the conversion wholly to online. So some of my scholastic programs. So for the first time in years, I had a little bit of extra work time and you know, I've got a sizable audience listening to the podcast. So I thought it would be fun to try out adult classes, you know, um, I call it the happy hour. The idea is, you know, at the end of a workday, if you want, you can have a drink during the class. It's certainly not um, not uh, required by any means. And I do, I do take the class seriously. But I mean, I, I want it to be a fun atmosphere. And I, you know, I cherish the opportunity to speak to grownups and, you know, help people who are more advanced. So it's generally targeted towards people in the like 1000 to 1600 range. And I just try to help uh, players with their thinking processes. Um, I think in particular, I know a lot of club players, like they know to study openings. And of course, everyone knows to do tactics because that's all they're ever told is to do tactics. But figuring out how to know what to do when you don't know what to do is like the million dollar question in chess. Um, so I present puzzles that some of them are tactical, but some of them are more based on that. And um, I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, I'm doing two classes a week right now. Um, and I, I honestly, I would love to do more, but that, that's what my schedule permits. But I'm, I'm really enjoying it and hoping to um, keep it as a part of my chess work um, portfolio, you could say. How do people join up with that? It's, it, sounds, it sounds like fun, and it sounds like the sort of thing that a lot of our listeners might enjoy. So how do they... Can they, can they just check it out one time or is there a sign up? So we just sort of, thank you for asking. We just sort of went through a uh, trial period where you could just drop in and it was kind of a la carte and donation based, but I, you know, I'm trying to sort of build community. Um, so I think going forward, it's going to be like discrete sets of classes. And in fact, just today I launched a set of classes that will start on December 2nd and 3rd, Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and they're small classes, you know, they're capped at 14 people per class. And, you know, at the day I sent them out, I have like eight for each class or something. So by the time you guys hear this, um, they may or may not be full, but if you go to perpetualchesspod.com slash happy hour, I think that's the exact URL, but definitely if you go to the podcast website, you'll see the link for the happy hour and you can join a mailing list. And this is only a six week set of classes and basically I'll be rejiggering things at the margins um, at the termination of every set of classes, and there'll be an opportunity for more people to get in. Um, but I definitely do like to have some continuity because, of course, you know, as, a, as an adult improver, it's really important to have, you know, study partners and people you can play training games against and to not feel like you have this sort of obsession that only takes place in the recesses of your basement. You know, you want to feel connected to people and you want to bounce ideas off of people. So that's uh, one of the ideas. See, now the way you just said that made it sound dirty. <laughs> like, like there's something wrong with, with, with studying chess maniacally in your basement by yourself. There's, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that, Ben. Um, so Ben, you've done some other things in your life besides chess. Um, I did not know until I heard you, well, I, I sort of knew, but I, I didn't really know until I heard you on Jen Shahadi's uh, podcast, The Grid, that it turns out you were pretty darn good at poker. 
so tell us about your poker career. And, and I mean, surely there's got to be more to it than one rough hand at some Austrian final table. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I kind of left that out of the chess in the schools um, story that I told, but um, I, I fell in love with poker in 1999 when the movie rounders came out. Um, which was early days to fall in love with poker. If, um, listeners may know there was kind of a poker boom in the aughts. Um, but I, you know, loved chess and then saw this movie and was like, wow, there's, there's a, a game you can actually make money playing. So I saw, I saw the movie and ordered my first poker book the next day. What was the poker book? It was called Winning, with, Winning at Low Limit Hold'em by Lee Jones. It was one of, there were a very small library of poker books at the time. Um, but, I mean, first of all, shout out to chess, because only a chess player would immediately order a book um, <laughs> about the topic when they discover a game instead of just being like, oh, I'm going to go crush these fools. You know? um, so from then on, you know, I kind of got steeped in the culture while I was in college, and I went to Pomona College in California, and there was an Indian casino about 45 minutes away that once in a while me and a friend would go to. Of course, I had absolutely zero clue what I was doing, and I had zero money, but um, I had a bit of fun. And, you know, it kind of wet my appetite. And then when I moved to New York, uh, Greg Shahadi already lived there. Uh, my good friend FM Donnie Ariel lived there. My friend Jakob Hirsch, who also was a great teacher and administrator at Chess in the Schools. And all of us kind of got into poker together. And meanwhile, poker was exploding. Um, so I had a lot of success. I mean, I was making really, like ridiculous money, you know, online. I mean, you know, I would make like 600, like I would like have to go to a barbecue with my girlfriend or something. And I'd make like, you know, $600 in the like 30 minutes before then. And then just like go there and just, you know, have a regular conversation or sometimes lose $2,000, you know, luckily more often win than lose. Um, so I started to make more money than I was teaching chess. And the last year I was, uh, actually no longer at chess in the schools. I was teaching under, uh, Sophia and Michael Rhodes. shout out to them. Um, and I, I had some uh, big score in a poker tournament, um, you know, that was able to pay off my student loans, um, have a little money in the bank. Um, and and uh, so when one school year ended, I might have been 2003 is my best guess. Um, I decided uh, I would give poker a try. And I, you know, especially for the first five years I was playing professionally. I mean, I would, I would sometimes have a losing month, but overall I was making a, a lot of money and mostly enjoying it during that period. And then, um, so did it stop with Black Friday or, or did, you, did you decide to take off before that? Uh, so I was making less money and getting burnt out in 2010 and 2011. Um, and then Black Friday came along and I decided um, that that was a signal. Um, but I was, you know, I was... Um, I, I needed to, I, you know, you say I was a great poker player. I had some success and I think I was pretty decent, but I mean, any current poker pro will tell you that the bar was pretty low those days. Um, there were a lot of people who just um, didn't, didn't have much discipline. And basically, if you read a few books and did what they said in the book, um, you would have decent chances of success. I mean, you know, I might be understating any skills I had a little bit, but um, I, I don't think I was like, I, I knew some, some uh, kind of natural geniuses of poker and I, I didn't really feel like I was one of them, but I could have, I was um, adaptable enough where I probably, I could have continued to make a good living if I was like willing to fight for it sort of thing. Um, but I didn't feel like I loved it at that point in uh, 2011. I decided to pursue other things. I, I wonder if you think there's a similarity in, in the way that um, computers and engines in chess and trainers and solvers in poker have, have sort of changed their respective games in the same way. I mean, you know, you, you, talk, to, you talk to older title players, and almost to a person, they talk about how, you know, a, a 2100 today is not nearly the same thing as a 2100 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, you know, it used to be you just lean on an expert back then, and eventually they would make mistakes, and and that was it. And and now, um, you know, I mean, twenty one hundreds hang in. Um, you know, they they know their openings. They they they're tactically they don't make tactical mistakes the same way they used to. And I, I wonder. It seems to be from what you're saying, the same thing is true in poker. That the the fish just aren't that fishy anymore. Uh, is it is it the tools? Is it just the natural evolution of the game? What do you think it is? It is pretty similar to chess um, in that 
Um, computers definitely have changed the game, as, as if anyone who's listened to Jen's great podcast, The Grid, has heard these uh, poker experts talk about solvers, which are kind of like engines. They basically tell you what the quote-unquote game theory optimal play, and basically a play that's not supposed to be exploitable. There's no strategy to exploit what you play in a given situation. So all of the top players in the world now are just like in the lab running simulations, you know, for countless hours a week. I mean, it is, it is reminiscent of chess. Um, one, one thing I would say is like, if you go to a casino, there's still plenty of money to be made at poker. Um, I, you know, I live in central Jersey and when I'm, when my family moved from Pittsburgh to central Jersey, I started to go to casinos again a little bit. Um, and you know, there's kind of like two worlds there because the pros, um, especially at the higher uh, echelon games, the serious stakes games, they're working on their solvers and, you know, trying to be unexploitable and trying to make sure they don't have any physical tells and all this stuff. Um, but all the money comes from the quote unquote fish. All the money comes from the recreational players. So you're mainly trying to, I mean, at least in most of the games, unless you're at the tippy top, you're trying to, um, break even or mitigate losses against the other pros. Um, and you're getting your money from a few players in the game. So that's something that's, that's always different than chess. And that's why there's, there's always opportunity in poker. If you're willing to, to look for, for the, the best game, you know, the cliche goes, if you're the you know ninth best player in the world, but they're all at the same table as you, you know, that that's not, that's not a good situation. <laughs> And uh, in chess, that doesn't happen as often. Plus, you have a better idea where you stand. So I, I wonder, you, you spent some time day trading as well. And I wonder how you think chess and poker prepared you for that. Yeah, I really had delusions of grandeur. So in, two, in 2011, when, uh, when poker uh, dried up, I, I had gotten really interested in financial markets. And, you know, I took the, the approach of a chess player and, read lots of books about it. I loved it. Um, you know, I didn't, um, I, you know, had Excel spreadsheets out the wazoo. Um, I didn't actually develop my own algorithm, which maybe if I were truly dedicated, that's what I should have done. Um, but there's, there's a lot of similarities in that, um, especially to poker and that you just have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself if you're not getting the results that you want. Um, and it's a long slog, and many, many people told me not to do it, and I didn't listen, which, um, you know, I mean, whatever. Like, it, it is what it is, as they say. Um, but ultimately, I, I had to give that up because I just wasn't making money, and suddenly I had a family five years later. So um, Funny how that works, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, Ben, I've got a few final questions for you. We are both very big bibliophiles. Um, anyone who's listened to your show knows that uh, one of the things you always talk about with everyone is is their favorite books. So I, I want to ask you about your favorite chess books. Uh, your your what what you've been uh, really liking recently from from new publish uh, new publications and also your all time favorites. Okay, yeah, I'm well well suited to answer this. You could say uh, I honestly, I mean, I read my share of chess books as a kid, but before the podcast, um, I I was no John Hartman when it came to. Uh, to chess literature, but but now um, I interview so many authors and I do try to always read their books, always try to be prepared um, for them. So of course I've interviewed people like uh, Matthew Sadler and Natasha Regan. So a uh, game changer, I do feel like uh, deserves all the credit uh, that it gets. It's it's an amazing book. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Willie Hendricks. Uh, I am Willie Hendricks, new book on the origin of good moves. Um, he traces the evolution of chess ideas basically through the players and, um, you know, went through their games and debunks a lot of myths, um, about like how Morphe played and how Steinitz played and, and, uh, just really well done. And I especially like the way the puzzles are presented in that because they're not all tactical puzzles, um, which I think is an important way for people to train because, um, um, as I'm not the first person to point this out, I know Grandmaster Peter Wells, who I recently interviewed also mentioned like, um, no one comes and taps you on the shoulder and tells you when you have a tactic in the game. So it's important to, to try to, to develop a sort of uh, holistic thinking process. And of course, I love uh, GM Augard's thinking inside the box. I tend to be a sucker for the sort of philosophical bent type books. So if we bring it back to sort of more old school books, um, the book that really like hit me in the heart more than any other was uh, The Seven Deadly Chessons by uh, GM Jonathan Rousen. 
Um, that came out sort of after my, already after my chess heyday, but I just, you know, that's, that's the kind of book that I love. You bring in a little philosophy and a, bring a little life experience and sort of talk about the metacognition of chess. Um, and in a similar vein, uh, Improve Your Chess Now, which as it happens, uh, by the time this comes out, a book recap of that book, that's by GM Jonathan Tisdall, um, is another one I like. And if you bring it back to my youth, of course, I'm kind of more classical um, education. So I like Masters of the Chessboard by Richard Reddy, my 60 memorable games. Um, so those are some of my favorites across the spectrum of like release date. It's always nice to hear someone reference the classics. And it, it leads me into the question that we sort of alluded to before. Maurice Ashley said that really he thinks the chess books are, are dying. And as you say, you, you hear this from a number of people, but you know, everyone you talk to on your podcast, they all love chess books. Um, what's your take on it? I mean, you work with scholastic kids. You, 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 know, you, you have a pretty, a pretty broad swath of experience. Do kids read chess books anymore? And if they don't, why do you think they don't? Yeah, honestly, other than, you know, the many top players and trainers I've interviewed, I'm, I'm maybe not the best person to answer this because most of the kids I work with tend to be not an age where they would be doing a ton of recreational reading to begin with. Um, I know when I interviewed GM Jesse Cry, he, I think he works with a lot of sort of strong teenager types. And he was definitely saying he can't get them to read chess books. Um, so I do think there's a grain of truth to it. Um, but I mean, amongst, you know, the 35 plus generation, there's still fervent interest in chess books. And I don't think that's going anywhere. So it's sort of like the, you know, everyone talks about like the decline of baseball. Like it might be declining, but it has millions of fans and it's going to continue to have millions of fans over many years. So I feel like in like here during the pandemic, there's more great chess books coming out than ever. So I feel like it has a firm foothold and a firm niche. Um, and, you know, stuff, of course, is getting a little more digital with my friends at Chessable. Um, they're giving opportunities for chess professionals of different levels to create courses and, you know, make a little money. And there's intense interest in those courses. So, and of course, I love forward chess as well. Um, just having the ability to play through games without like having to constantly rewind a position and stuff like that, or even get out a chess set when you have little kids. So basically, I think, uh, I think chess books might be on a, you know, moderate decline, but, you know, Magnus Carlsen read all the chess books, you know, so it's, um, I, I would say, if anything, in my opinion, its decline is exaggerated. That is good to hear. I, I, I hope this is the case. Uh, I, you know. John, you got to talk your book. You got to say it. You got to speak it into existence, even if it's not true. That's the, uh, oh no! The, the, I wish I had time at this point. <laughs> I mean, this this has been this has been the tough thing about you know learning the editor gig is that you know it just just sucks time away from everything else. And uh, you know, with a five year old at home, I mean, you know what it's like having kids. And uh, and I always tell people one of the things that surprised me most becoming a, you know, I mean, for, for lack of a better word, a chess professional was how much I don't want to work on my chess anymore. Uh, you know, ch chess teachers in New York always told me that, like, I would always say to them, like, you're, you're working on, you're teaching chess all the time. Why aren't you playing more tournaments? And they'd say, you don't understand. I don't want to look at chess. Yeah. And, and it, it sometimes, I mean, you know, to be fair though, I mean, like I've just started working with a coach, uh, a, a new coach. I'm, I'm trying to play online tournaments, but it's a lot. And I, oof, it just 2020, man. Yeah, it, it's tough. Shout out to everyone out there grinding. I, I salute you guys. I know it's not easy. Um, and yeah, I, I'm so inspired by people who are putting in, you know, the people that do wake up early and study chess for an hour before their kids wake up. Um, stuff like that. I just, I think it's awesome. Um, I, I'm somewhere in the middle, as I said. I mean, I'm, I haven't given up, but I've, sort of uh, accepted my station in life for, for better or worse. So I do have to ask you, uh, what did you think of the Queen's Gambit? I enjoyed it. I mean, I watched it with my wife who knows how the pieces move, but knows nothing else about chess other than the various chess personalities who've come, come into her orbit through me over the years. Um, yeah, I thought it was uh, marvelously done and obviously a huge boon for chess. I mean, I could, you know, I could nitpick here and there, but I mean, uh, at minimum, I'd give it a nine out of 10. I mean, it's amazing to see 
see the reaction to hear Jen on like NPR, Jen Shahadi on NPR one day and in the Washington Post the next and in the New York Times the next. Um, it's just awesome to see. And obviously she's an incredible representative for the chess world. And uh, as a longtime friend of hers, I'm proud to see her spread her wings. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's great to see. So final question, what is next for Ben Johnson? Oh man, the, the dreaded, <laughs> the dreaded cliche interview question. Gotta um, ask it. <laughs> um, let me think. I mean, I, I'm really enjoying these adult classes. I have so many content ideas. Um, and not that much time. So I've been trying to pick what to, first of all, I've been waiting for even a window. It seems like I might have a small window, at least for a month to spend, you know, maybe five hours a week on something. So I've considered, you know, YouTube, different YouTube ideas, maybe an additional podcast, maybe a chess book. And uh, I would say I'm, you know, podcast related chess book. I have no delusions that I'm going to write like, you know, a, a better book than thinking inside the box. Although, you know, I, I may write a chess puzzle book someday or something like that. But I mean, I, you know, the grandmasters can sleep well at night. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, I'm leaning in the direction of writing a podcast related book, but God knows how long it would take. Um, my, my work schedule as a freelancer is pretty variable. So, um, but I would love to make it happen. And I, I, you know, it would be a, a fun experience for me to do. Well, we will keep our eyes open, and uh, no matter how long it takes, I think it will be something worth reading. So, uh, where can people find you? Where, where, where can we reach out to Ben Johnson? I finally got like the professional email address. So now, instead of having like at Gmail or whatever, um, as you know, John, I do of course have personal email addresses. But now I am Ben at PerpetualChessPod dot com. If you email that address, I will. As long as you don't say something snarky. I'll probably, I'll probably reply eventually. Um, uh, but of course, I'm very active on chess Twitter. That's my favorite social media. Um, so if you're on Twitter, give me a shout. And I, there's also a Perpetual Chess Facebook group um, where I post the episodes each week and sometimes the guests pop in and uh, answer additional questions and stuff like that. So I'm not a huge fan of uh, Facebook, I have to say, but... I haven't been able to cut the cord from Facebook as of yet, and I do love the uh, the the I love interfacing with the other chess people, both in that group and in the other groups. I will say it's incredibly well moderated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unsung hero John Hartman. Uh, <laughs> I, I I try to help out and keep it clean, but uh, no, it's um, there are some chess chess related Facebook groups out there. Uh, you know, Ben, Ka- uh, Brian Karen's uh, chess book collectors group is another one. Yeah. 27,000 members strong. And, and everything seems to stay on topic. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, th- there are some awful corners of the, f- the internet that you find on Facebook, but uh, your group for perpetual chess and definitely Brian's as well. Well worth checking out. All right. Well, Ben, thank you very much. And I, I do hope that, uh, you know, we can someday, uh, make it number four for me on your podcast when I do something notable. So, are there people who have been on more times than I have? Uh, I think you're, you, Greg, did like a, one sort of fake appearance um, promoting something on the Pro Chess League in the early days, in addition to his other appearances. So, depending on whether you count that, I think that's three or three and a half. And it is, you know, it's in the archive, so basically it should count. But I believe. I believe that uh, Jan Gustafsson and Greg are in pole position with uh, three appearances. And Kostya Kubiutski, um also was on three times because um, he generously um, pitched in from the World Championship with I Am Eric Rosen, in addition to coming on twice as a guest. So, um, so I think you're, you know, you're, you're, you're in the conversation. I, I always feel like it's the, uh, like the five timers club that on Saturday night live or something like that, where you should get a jacket <laughs> or something and, and get to hang yes. out with, you know, with a uh, Bill Murray and uh, Steve Martin. Yeah. Perpetual chess often all the time. It's, it's the one thing I hear all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, Ben, again, thank yes. you so much. I, I appreciate you hopping in and pinch hitting and, uh, yeah, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. Yeah. I'm glad to slide in the back door into the, uh, cover stories of chess life. And again, Congratulations to U.S. Chess, and thank you to, to John Rockefeller V. Um, it's, it's great to see this donation, and uh, it's nice to see uh, the chess world have the wind at its back. Absolutely. All right, Ben, thanks so much. Okay. Bye, everyone. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.